0: hi there how are you thanks for tuning in it's danny lobel and welcome you know what to it's another episode of modern day philosophers with me danny lobel and today my guest is daryl lennox man i love daryl lennox i can't wait for you to hear the interview we recorded this nearly a year ago now in Acumal, mexico at the Acumal comedy festival run by our sponsor stand-up records take a listen to this ad
1: Warning, stand-up records may cause intestinal distress. Fits of insane laughter. Instant diarrhea. Existential malaise. Headaches. Nausea. Dizziness. Vomiting. Seasonal affective disorder. More headaches. Pneumomono ultramicroscopic volcano coniosis. Stand-up records should not be handled by women who are pregnant, may become pregnant, have ever been pregnant, or personally know anyone who has been pregnant. Do not consult your doctor if he's operating heavy machinery. Stand-up records is for external application only. And stand-up records is, of course, good for a few laughs. So remember that's standuprecords.com. For the world's finest comedy CDs, DVDs, and merchandise. That's standuprecords.com. The revolution will be hilarious.
0: That's right, Stand-Up Records puts on the Aquamal Comedy Festival. They raise a ton of money for the Red Cross out there. They do some really good things, and they sell some really great stand-up comedy records. Go get some. All right, why drag it out? Daryl Lennox, we recorded it in a big house in Mexico on the beach, and that's that's where we had to record. So the sound isn't optimal, but the interview is fantastic. And uh, what else can I tell you? I love this guy. He's very, very funny. And I hope you enjoy this very rare look inside the mind. I just want to hype it up. This very exclusive look into the brain of a serial killer. No, hopefully not. Um, I've been watching these serial killer shows on TV. Not because I'm seeking them out. It's just that that's all that's on when you don't have cable. They try to scare you into getting cable. I think that's what it is. All right, why keep you waiting? Now I'm going to take you right to Acoma, Mexico. So without further ado, except for the intro song, my talk with Daryl Lennox. Enjoy.
1: Hello, and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Modern Day Philosophers.
0: All right. Sitting here. Well, I'm sitting here in Acumal. I'm sitting here in Acumal, Mexico. We're here for the Acumal Comedy Festival, and I'm uh, sitting next to a man who is really one of my favorite comedians, probably the guy who I've, out of all the clips, the Conan clips and Letterman clips and everything that I've seen in the past few years, I've probably shared yours the most. Wow. Um, The man I'm speaking about is Daryl Lennox, and uh, Daryl, thank you for being here. Thanks for
1: having me, Dan. That's uh, high praise, man. I know you're a student of the game, so thank you.
0: What's really great about what you do is it's it's very, very personal, and it's also very jokey, and that's such a rare thing. Like, you're, in my opinion, a master joke craftsman, but at the same time, you're not just writing jokes to write jokes. You're really writing very deep, personal, and real stuff about yourself. It's kind of... To me, that's like the mecca of really great comedy.
1: I think I read this quote from uh, Hicks, Bill Hicks, where he said, you know, if you can't be fun, it be interesting. So I kind of, I always want to be more interesting because, you know, I trust the funny's going to come anyway because it's a natural sense. Uh, and then writing the personal stuff, it was so big in my life talking about the personal stuff and I just could not talk about it. I felt really bad if I was phony. I have very bad eyes and I'm blind in one eye and, you know, close to totally blind the other eye and i had these two surgeries uh one to stem the potential blindness and the only seeing an eye, and the other eye was just cosmetic surgery uh and so it was a, a life transforming thing for me because i was in this you know scary uncertain place in my career um and i thought man you know if, if i end up totally if i end up totally blind um you know i just did not want to depend on anybody like that so i had these you know like most comics, you have those weird suicidal dark thoughts and so the surgery was successful to a certain extent and I thought well I have to talk about this. How
0: old were you when you lost this, sight?
1: Uh, I lost a sight in the left eye in 1995. And that was from a fight? A fight in a bar fight in
0: Canada. Yeah that was a good one. You never think about it in, in Canada. I mean in you're Canada. not you're not a hockey guy so was, without, if you remove during, hockey it I it think was of during Canada. It the hockey a, playoff season though. Oh okay. So,
1: yeah I got into a fight with a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. Oh boy. And so <laughs> yeah. Um, but it uh, so the material you know I knew it was important to me and so what I learned I thought okay so I studied a bunch of Cosby stuff the dentist bit and then uh, Richard Pryor's uh, setting himself on fire and the heart attack but I thought man and so my father-in-law's a he's a huge classical music fan I said you know well those classical musicians symphonies they they have like 20, 25, sometimes 30 minute pieces of music. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to learn how to, so I listened to those over and over again, especially Italian stuff uh, to create some tension and release it and still be able to keep the attention span over 25 minutes. So I just listened to that nonstop while I was writing. And I I finally figured out how to do it in that chunk of material.
0: I never heard the comparison between Classical music and comedy, often jazz. Yeah, jazz, but you never, jazz a lot, yeah. I can, I see it now. You know, when I look at your your material, maybe that is what it is. It, it does have that kind of. Bum, 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 bum,
1: bum. <laughs> and then there's quiet. You hear like a little triangle symbol, and then. Duh, 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 duh. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's it really is just a matter of you know creating tension and releasing it. Um, so yeah.
0: so how
1: old were you when you, you
0: you lost vision both both eyes were from the fight
1: no just I lost complete sight in the left eye from the fight but I was born with just really bad eyes okay and so they're like you know I've normally sized and just you know really near sight so they have a different shape than a normal person's eyes so I've always been wearing glasses and contact lenses and as you get older you know stuff starts to fall apart
0: and all the classical musicians, you always hear stories of they're deaf, they were blind, they were this. And that. I mean, it, can, it kind of fits you to compare yourself to a classical
1: musician. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I guess so. It's, I got that releasing and creating tension from uh, Brent Schieis from Montreal. And he saw the piece of material and he goes, This is fantastic. And he said, You create a lot of tension and you have to learn how to release it. And I was like, And I'd never heard those phrases in terms of comedy before. Mm-hmm. So I liked it. Because comedy is just essentially, uh, essentially peakable, right? Mm-hmm. That's the first thing we learn how to laugh at as a kid, is peekaboo. Yeah, and so that's what a great joke is, and that's what a great story, with the ending is, is a big peekaboo, <laughs> and we always laugh at that. So if you can disguise the peekaboo, then the better the stuff's going to be.
0: You're right. Yeah, exactly. It's mm-hmm. all it's all surprise and reveal. Absolutely. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about growing up with with uh, poor eyesight and what that sure. was like.
1: Um I didn't know any other alternatives. Um I never really thought about it. The insecurity part of it was because I, you know, you know who who's going to get the girl, not the guy with the big glasses. You yeah. know, you never saw those guys on TV with the girl, and so I just thought and it still became my philosophy too. I thought, well, yeah, I'm, I was a pretty good athlete, so I said, "Well, you know, I'll just become play basketball, and then I'll get all the girls, and I'll get the fame and glory, and then they'll, I'll, I'll make glasses cool." And so that's what I did. And so I had no social life whatsoever. I was just a maniac in trying to get better, like as, in, as in basketball, in everything. I man, I I had to be about seven, and I don't know where I found this, but I, uh, I saw something on PBS. And uh, about how humans only use a certain percentage of their brain. And I thought, well, how come I can't use more than that? <laughs> so I took it <laughs> upon myself at That's that ambitious. age to try to learn as much as I could about using my brain. So uh-huh. I, I, I learned how to try to. So I put a tape in. I saw a Kurt Russell movie where uh, he was an uh, athlete and he was a dumb athlete. and his, his smart roommate played a record player over and over again with his lesson plan on it. Uh-huh. And he got a good grade in his homework. So I rigged up a little tape recorder. And I put my goals in it and it was sleep (laughs) and play while I was sleeping because I thought, well, if it were for Kurt Russell, and so I'm not kidding. I did that from age seven, at least until 24, 25, Uh just over and over again, thinking I'm implanting, you know, this thing into my subconscious mind. You were
0: trying to basically develop superpowers.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: You know, like any classic superhero, you had a disability, and yeah. you were like, you know yeah. what, I'm gonna,
1: yeah, yeah, you know, and that Unbreakable movie really did a number on my head because everybody wants to be the Bruce mm-hmm. Willis character, but I realized, you know, I'm the dude that's falling down the stairs and I've broken so many bones and stuff. And <laughs> me, I'm like, dang, I gotta be Mister Glass, uh-huh. so maybe I'll be a, a more positive Mister Glass. So yeah,
0: how were you able to play basketball with
1: poor eyesight? Uh well, the glasses were really thick, and then I got contact lenses, uh, and my depth perception is always just jacked up, so I could see the rim, but I couldn't tell how far away I uh, was away from it, so I never thought, I have, that's that's too
0: far <laughs> to shoot. I have this funny picture in my head of you going to dunk, but you're at the half-court no, no. way, and you just no. go back down, you're nowhere <laughs>
1: No, man. I can shoot from great distances because I, if I can see it, I can hit it. That's, yeah. it. that's how I've always thought. If I can see it, then I can get to it.
0: That seems to be your idea in life.
1: Oh, that is exactly my idea in life. If yeah. I can see it, I can, I can hit it. i get to it now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if I can't, I'll keep walking till I bump into it. And that's how, with my sight now, it's how it is. You know, I never really worry. I'm like, okay, well, I'll get to the bottom of those steps eventually. I'll feel with my foot and I'll get there. If I bump into something, I'll know. Okay, move away a little bit and keep going till you bump into something, and eventually you just get there. Where did you grow up? I moved around a lot. I was born in Vegas, and then we moved all over California, from Sacramento all the way down into the Santa Maria, Santa Barbara area, uh, and then we back, went back to Las Vegas for my senior year of high school, which was just traumatic to have to go back. You know, to leave mm-hmm. your friends. You had the yeah.
0: earliest reunion of anybody yeah. in any
1: school. Yeah, your friends during your <laughs> senior years, terrible. And then that's when it was horrible, but it was also one of the defining moments in my life in that, you know, I left all this great place in, in Santa Maria and I went to Las Vegas and it was just terrible and it's like my whole life changed and I thought I now look back and I go, Man, this is great that it happened this way because I would have finished some things and I would have realized that I wasn't as good as I thought I was if I had finished them. Can you clarify that? Um, so, okay, so I didn't get to play my junior year of basketball on Santa Maria because I detached a retina, and so uh, then we moved my senior year, and so then uh, I, you know, I hadn't played in two years, so then I got cut on the, from the basketball team on Thanksgiving Day, uh, me and Greg Maddox at Valley High School. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the famous baseball player. And then I got, and I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I could not believe it. I just didn't understand it. And at the same time, my favorite uncle had died of cancer. My favorite sister had gotten pregnant. Uh, and so I went through this crazy religious epiphany that, you know, maybe I'm doing something wrong. So I got evangelical. So I was like this little 18-year-old uh, praying in tongues, hands healing people, Little weird dude. I hear the music coming in. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah, that's what it was, (laughs) right? So my whole life was like that. But what I meant, so if uh, I hadn't detached the retina and had played and we didn't move from San Marie, Las Vegas, I would have finished my career. And I probably would not have been what I thought I could be. But because I kept getting those kind of ass whippings, uh, I kept pushing, thinking, well, I'll get them next. I'll show them that they were wrong. Why' did your family move around so much um my mom uh she uh she married a great guy who was my stepdad for a little while. He just you know was a manager at sears and uh so they transferred him a few times and then she worked at uh Bell and then they had through the big breakup and uh so then she got start transferring around too
0: mm. yeah What? and what about your your dad where your
1: my my stepdad is uh so he's passed away but he was like my guy he had polio and so he always taught me how to use my brain Mm -hmm. uh and then when i got after all the religious dumb stuff and live vegas in 18 i wanted to go meet my real father so i met him in seattle and that's when you know i I found out on my father's side i come from a generation of pimps so i went you know, I so was, when you met him, you were all religious. I was very religious, and then I was in the beginning stage of disillusionment, and then i meet your dad. And what I mean, what better way to go from one extreme to the other, right? You yeah. go from healing people to looking at all these bitches, you know? And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so... But there wasn't a part of you
0: that was like, let me try and heal my dad.
1: No, no, because all the stuff that had happened, you know, I felt, like a lot of people, you know, if you have... If you have an absurdist faith like you take things so literally like i do then and then there's no room for interpretation there's no well sometimes things happen in in the ways that god understands that men don't like i'm 18 you know better give me a better answer than that so i when i left vegas to go be my dad i was done with the belief stuff i was like i'm out of here on that what do you think attracted you to it the in the first place to the religious stuff? Yeah. I was sitting in church, uh, and then I heard uh, what I thought this voice was in my head, and said, do you really want to play in the NBA? And I go, yep. And they go, you better get up and give myself to God. So I got up and walked to the church. Mm-hmm. That was it. Really? That was it.
0: And then once you were there, something about it must have really spoken to you, more than just the incentive of basketball.
1: Uh, no. It was, you know what? It was the literal, all of the Jesus stuff. If you believe strong enough, you can accomplish anything which fed right into being six, trying to change my brain from 6% to 100% and, uh, you know, implanting seeds of thought in my subconscious mind. So It's the same
0: ex- extreme thing as playing a tape over and over it's again. It's the exact same thing.
1: That is exactly who I am, is that guy right
0: You were there. just trying to search for what's the hey, thing that's going to give me superpowers. Thing,
1: what's the thing that's going to make me <laughs> that that enormous? How can I get to the superpower? Yeah. 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 So,
0: how long were you with the church for?
1: Uh, so my senior year, right before, so from about about uh, August until May, May. So not that it, long. That was, no, but it stayed. You went hard. Your, yeah, I go. I do everything stupid hard. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, some of the tenants stayed with me. Like what? Um, just the most important part, the faith part the you know hey man if you believe in, in it then it can happen that stuff never goes away and then when I got to Seattle I met my dad I got my first ever girlfriend and I never had any sex because Jesus that's you know that mm-hmm. was kind of sinful but I was anxious to get over that and um, she was I was 20 she was 37 and she's a witch uh, and so what she was a witch what does that mean uh you know witch uh, Wiccan witch she cast spells and a wicked she, Wiccan witch yeah. yeah yeah so again with the uh, extremism right so yeah. go from from that to so what what kind of witch things did she do so she was uh a lot of the wiccan religion stuff is based on a lot of uh native indian ritual stuff and so there's a lot of cl- uh, um, uh planting of things in the earth and um and chanting and meditations and uh incense and so they read you know um so she was like a gardener more than she's been a witch. <laughs> she did like to spend a lot of time in the garden, too. Yeah. So, yeah, so I was that was my first girlfriend, first sex, first everything. And I didn't realize she was that until uh, she we had just all we did was have sex the first. 14 days of the relationship, and then I looked at her bookshelf, and I was like, what is this? Like, White witch and magic spells, and I got scared, and I put my pants back on it, because I thought I would turned my back on God, but I was like, oh, this devil dude still might be real, mm-hmm. and so, and then I made her explain her belief system to me, so... How,
0: how interesting is that to go from extreme? Exactly. One, one, I mean, extreme. that is such an extreme to another extreme, yeah. And and here you are, you're this young kid, and yeah. and she's kind of bringing you into maturity, absolutely. And uh, and you're like, holy shit, she yeah. just stole my innocence with witchcraft, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> and then my dad <laughs> smashed it right back. Oh, damn. So, my old man <laughs> snatched my innocence right back from her. So, wow. how did that go, down Well, he goes, Well, you know, he was upset, you know, because she appeared to be well off. She had this big house uh, on Lake Washington. And so I told her, I'm seeing this 37, told my dad, I'm seeing 37 year old uh, lady. And he said, uh, Well, it's just nothing but sex for her. But I thought, well, no, I'm. Not, I love her. He goes, you think you do, but it's just sex for her. It can't be anything but sex for her. So he snaps into being
0: a dad like right away.
1: That he, if you thought, or just being a pimp is what he was. It was a hard line, bottom line reality. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't want to hear it. So we had a bet. So he said, look, you've been asking for money to get a weight jacket, uh, so I could jump rope and get my vertical up. Mm-hmm. And listen to my tapes. And um, he said, I said, yeah. He goes, and I've been asking you to mow the lawn. And uh, he said, the next time you have sex with her, he goes, I want you to stop, and then I want you to tell her you can't t- continue to please her because you have some financial difficulties, and I guarantee you she'll give you that money. And then he went through this long, he called it the pole and the hole theory. And he said, you know, a hole just sits there and the pole does all the work. And he said, in that, a man's dick is more valuable than a woman's pussy, and so I will bet you that. So I bet him and uh, did it. And so she gave me the money really and it just it ruined everything for me it ruined it was just the same as getting cut from the basketball team it was just the same as my uncle died it was just like i had this incredible belief that this this is what love is and then it was just shattered
0: well, why why doesn't it reinforce the idea that she loves you she'll give you money she'll support you
1: because he didn't put that idiom into my head, he put <laughs> he put the pole in the hole theory in my head. He and, broke the witch's spell. Yeah, and it, <laughs> and you know what? Uh, you know, I'm older now, and I see that he was partly right and partly wrong. He he could have said it a lot better than that, mm-hmm. but that's what he knew, um, and so that ruined any constructions I had about love for a long time. What was your
0: dad's life like that led him to being a pimp?
1: Um. Crazy, man. He was, uh, his father uh, had 26 kids and uh, by a bunch of different women. He was in the streets, a hustler, a gambler, and ran women, too. And so my grandmother. Where, where was this? I'm this sorry. was in Oga, Oklahoma, Hugo, Oklahoma. And so my grandfather, who I never met, um, uh, had uh, my dad. And so my dad was a little bit of an athlete, and he was going off to college on scholarship, and he asked his dad, hey, I'm going away, can you help me with some money? And he said his dad pulled out this whack of money and only gave him $20. And so my dad, having a hot temper, cursed him out. And then my grandfather said, you know, you really think your mama's something, don't you? He said, I'm gonna tell you something about how special she is. He said, you know how she cleaning them white people's houses? He said, well, you know, she'd be fucking them white dudes for money. So what does that make your mama? And so my dad goes back to my grandmother and confronts her on it, and she, she didn't bend, but she's not supposed to. She said, look, mm-hmm. I have to raise these kids however I raise these kids. And so I have to do what I have to do, and you don't need to know, but. And so he took that to heart, and it just shattered his construction, what a mom and a woman supposed to be like. So he thought, well, if my mother was a whore, then everybody's gotta be a whore. That was how he explained it to me, he goes, you know, if that was, her, if her price was that, then, you know, and that's my mother, then what, every woman got a price. And so that was his, that was his thing. And he was a very, very, very good looking guy. And then women would just start, you know, they would just give him stuff. And so he thought, okay, well, I'm start taking advantage of this. And so my mom tried to kind of corral him into a normal, you know, life, but he just, no nah, he just don't thought, I, you know, I can get a bigger, better, faster. Mm-hmm. By doing it on the street,
0: and then he broke your, you know, delusions about That's love. Right. Yeah, you yeah. know, just like his had been broken Absolutely. as well. Yeah, man, it, it always is the it's, domino effect generationally, yeah. isn't it? I wonder what happened to your grandfather that he
1: wound up pimping. I, I know. I mean, way back then, but that you know, how, how did that happen? Just at you know, so we're talking. So my dad's seventy-two now, so his dad you know which was probably 18 19 years older than him then so my dad's born in 43 so what is that the 30s late 20s mm-hmm. and so those are some of the depression areas about to happen and you had to get however you was going to get it and there wasn't a hell of a lot of opportunities and if you know you're a smooth talking good-looking guy you know gamble and go get the girls
0: well I, I mean i've read all these old books about New Orleans in the 20s and, sure. and uh, the prostitution scene there and yeah. how basically it was a way after slavery, how a lot of black people were able to get up on their feet.
1: Yeah. And those, uh, you know, the men were looked up uh, the, uh, like preachers. They were successful members of the community. Uh, and so it's a real weird dynamic, man. It was a hard thing uh for me to process uh going from religiosity to my old man and then learning that kind of from that side of my family but then when i when i left him and i started to meet other people from other cultures and then i started doing stand-up i traveled doing those uso and dod tours and i realized man i i don't think anybody's story is horribly drastically different than anybody else's you know persecution is 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 not subjective um, and so everybody's got a lineage of shittiness, whether it be from wealthy people having, you know, incest and, you know, the, the, you know having kids out of wedlock and high, just all kinds of nastiness in the human evolutionary path. And so one of the things that I thought was that I'm not going to let um, my path be interrupted by something that I didn't have any control over as best as I can. Same so, as the vision. So I accept, you know, yeah, it's hard. It's like it's like being here in Mexico. You know, if you go around saying it's hot, well, okay, well, what would you expect? It's hot. So mm-hmm. I know it's hard to be black. I know that the trail the trail has been hard and everything. But I, okay, but at least now that I know that, then let's get to moving. Mm-hmm. And I know I can't see for shit, so I'm accepting that. All right, now let's get to moving and see what I can do with what I have. Um, And so... 'Cause somebody's gotta change it, right? I could have been, you know, follow my dad's footsteps on the illegal way, but I said, Well, I gotta do something different. And I can't play basketball, so then the comedy came into play and I'm like, Okay. But I'm not stupid enough to think that I don't hustle people like I do my dad does. Mm-hmm. I know I'm not not naive. Uh, so I can't I can't put a lot of, you know, emphasis for my own path on persecution. Because persecuted people persecute people, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, hurt people hurt people. So those dummies that you know uh, did what they did to the Jews and the native Indians and the, you know, the Australians, Like everybody's been persecuted at certain levels. But then at some point you go, all right, I'm a persecuted person. Now what am I going to do with that? Otherwise, it just swallows you up.
0: It's interesting to me that you have to rely on, on all your senses more internally. You know, you have to, you have to tap into your internal a lot more than people. I mean, first of all, because of the vision Mm -hmm. and also because of the deception in your life. You've, you've, you've been, you've had the rug pulled out from under you a few times and that's probably harder when you can't see clearly and it's got to be a feeling emotionally like am i am i seeing clearly with my brain that's got to go back to why you were trying to use more of your brain
1: yeah yeah because you know the brain is what i can trust and my emotions you know can betray me but if i can feel something to a certain extent and then read up on everything then i feel i have a little more control over it Um, so you're signing
0: you're trying to see with your brain
1: absolutely absolutely And it's every single step along the way, there's been something, whether it be, you know, the preachers or the witch first girlfriend, Mm -hmm. my dad or, you know, my ex-Jewish wife. It seems the whole country of Canada, it seems like everywhere I've gone along the way, there's this thing that says, look at this and learn from this because you're going to need this to help you get better at your job and help people more. So let's go back to you and your dad how long did you spend with him um so i met him at 19 uh, 18 19 and then i stayed with him until 23 uh, off and on and then i was never not too far away from him except when he was in prison Uh, so i i had to leave seattle in 92 93 to get away from him and to get away from the stuff, the life that I was leading. I was following his footsteps in a lot of ways. T- tell me about it. Well, I mean, it all, so after he, you know, maybe do the pole in the hole, or I did it, uh, and then I was it for the love stuff, and I thought, okay, well, how am I gonna accomplish these goals and dreams? And so uh, basketball showed me that I wasn't going to be what the tapes I had made were gonna be. I wasn't gonna be a big NBA star. So then I found comedy. Um, While
0: you were living with your dad,
1: my dad was in jail at the time. But what what happened
0: directly after the and The Whole Theory? Did you join the church of your dad? <laughs> was that enough? Were you sold on his philosophy? Yeah,
1: and so you know, he taught me how to keep getting money uh, in various different ways and schemes from the first girlfriend. And like so, what
0: what were some of the schemes uh
1: again it was a manipulation but always victim uh and then there were sometimes withhold sex and sometimes absolutely you know uh, sexually dominated with the orgasms and uh and the uh, um and then he was like he Okay, you know, learn how her body works and everything. So I learn all that stuff. And he just said it's just anatomy. It's just anatomy. So I'd learn this stuff. So I learned how to, you know, make her, you know, come in a bunch of different ways. And then after I'd make her feel fantastic like that, I would do something really horrible. Crashed her car. Uh, I didn't on do purpose? it on purpose. Yeah. Not on purpose, I did crash it. But he told me what would happen. He goes, She'll forgive you. As long as you can control her mind and her body. She will forgive you for just about anything you do. You became a master manipulator. Master manipulator. Yeah. And so she always, you know, whatever, you know, I thought I needed, you know, I could get it from her.
0: In a way, your dad taught you how to prostitute yourself.
1: It's exactly what he taught me how to do. He exactly what he taught me how to do. And he prostituted himself because he was such a good looking guy and he was, you know, the women would do anything for him but he would never sleep with him. Um, and never, never. He just—that's not part of the hustle. He goes, "If you're gonna pimp, you don't sleep with him."
0: You never get high on your own supply. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, so once uh, my girlfriend got tired of all of that, and then she called my foot to the carpet about the the basketball stuff. I did stand up. I wonder if
0: she put a spell on you. You will lose your eyesight altogether. And this is some
1: kind of. <laughs> <laughs> we thought we put spells on each other. We really did, I mean, because I would never been hurt like that before, uh, and I still loved her, even though I was a manipulator, I still thought I loved her, and then, you know, I learned all of her books just in case she was going to put a spell on me, so, so I practiced putting spells on everything, so. So, you find yourself doing a lot yes, of gardening. I was ready for war, you know, <laughs> so I learned everything. I learned all the stuff that she knew, just in case we were going to have a battle of <laughs> some sort of good <laughs> versus evil. You turned into did. magic, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Magic the Gathering
0: or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoosh. You want to put a spell on me? I'll put put a spell on you, baby. (laughs) And
1: it was ridiculous. So she called me one time. She was like, did you put a spell on me? And so I didn't, but I didn't say that I didn't. I said, I'm not telling you what I did. If it feels like I did, then I (laughs) did Mind games. Yes. (laughs) So she would call me upset. You know, please tell me. Because she believed so strongly that 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 stuff worked. you know. And I wasn't 100% sure that it did or didn't. But... I knew that whatever I could use to kind of stay in her head I would do. What race was she? She was just a you know, regular white lady. Her father was a, a pastor from a very prestigious church and uh and uh her uh she used to babysit uh Anne and Nancy Wilson from Hart, so I knew them. <laughs> okay. And uh yeah, I just she just regular white ladies regular.
0: are always the ones that become witches, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I didn't know. It was the first person I ever had in my life. And so, uh-huh. yeah. But, yeah, she was regular white lady. <laughs> <laughs> Did she have a broom? <laughs> of course she had a broom.
0: <laughs> was she able to make magic in the yeah. house, clean it up? And I, <laughs> <laughs> that tickles you, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. Because yep. I'm immature. <laughs> So after, after her, you went through a series of different women. Now, were these your dad's no, women?
1: No, I never never really wanted to get with that you know, was the women, because they loved him too much. And uh, I just thought, okay, this is not good. Actually, one girl I really fell in love with, but, and he sent her downstairs to try to, you know, give me some, but I was too afraid, and I immediately went back to romantic notions, and so I didn't have sex with her. But
0: You didn't want to get too close to, to
1: what, to his business or what? Um, I knew that there was no way that was going to end up well Mm -hmm. for him. It just didn't make sense for him or for you. For him, it just seemed simple. It was like, well, that's like you know, that's like doing heroin. Like that's that's going to turn bad at some point.
0: So I wonder if there was a notion that you didn't want to have a woman that your dad controlled.
1: Nope. I mean, because I, I mean, I wanted that girl to be in love with me. Uh. But she just laughed at me. Like she had, she had to go in the hospital for some sort of procedure. She had like a cyst that had burst or something. And so I went to the hospital, and I knew she loved Oreos, So I brought her some Oreos and I said, just leave, Brittany, just be in you. She looked at me like I was an idiot. And uh, she was like, what are you talking about? Uh-huh. And I thought, wow. I mean, the fact that she, she would want to live that life with my dad rather than take a chance on, you know, just somebody purely loving her. Right. Just didn't make sense to me. So you were
0: still a romantic at
1: heart. I still am a romantic dude at heart. hmm. Yeah.
0: Now, do you, when you started learning how to manipulate women, did that translate over to men too? Were you like, I can manipulate anybody?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it started in stand. So when the stand up happened, I, I watched everything. And from watching, you know, all the prostitutes and the other people who came into my dance house for drugs and stuff, I would watch them and. I can read people really well. And so when I come into comedy clubs and I don't know if you know this, but comics are not the most secure people on the planet. <laughs> and so I watch <laughs> I watched all these incredibly insecure people going on and off stage and I was like, Wow, look at this. Mm-hmm. And all and I had this Crazy, blind faith, bravado, confidence. So I did really well my first time. And then all these comics just start coming up to talk to me, and then girls and the audience were just talking to me. I was like, I think I could really run this thing. So then uh, when I start hanging out with the comics, you know, I started hearing their insecurities, and then I thought, oh man, I could, I could get this dude. And you know, comics want to tell you everything about themselves, and so I, as soon as I'd hear, you know, man, my, my dad left me some money. I go, I'm gonna get that money i'm gonna get that dude's money how'd you do that um oh i don't know a million different times one is always i knew that comics love the aspect of fame and fortune and so i would always have some scam of i'm about to be famous i did that a bunch uh and then a lot of times it was again the whole victim thing man i wish i could hang out with you but my phone bill's all jacked up man and so I was just constantly working people for what I thought I could get out of them.
0: And this was all where? In, in Seattle. Seattle. Yeah. So you moved to Seattle. Yep. You're with your dad. Yeah. You're learning the ways of, of pimping. Yeah. And, and what point does it cross your mind, you know what, I got I to try comedy?
1: Um, after my girlfriend, the older lady, I had a fight, and she told me I wasn't going to be anything. And then I always thought I could be funny. I always thought I could tell a story really well. This and, is not the witch. The witch. The witch I, the inspired witch. it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we got into a fight because this old Luther Vandross song called "If This World Were Mine," and uh, I was singing that. And she just snapped. Mm. So you think about us the future? You and your dumb damn tapes. What if you don't make it to the NBA? I'm tired of paying for your dinner and paying for your food and paying for everything. You can't do anything. I'm tired. I already have two kids. And I go, at least I have something to believe in. You just a baby. She, pow! She slapped me in the face. Damn. And uh, my dad said, the fastest way to get to jail is to hit a white woman. So <laughs> I did not. I just let her hit me. She goes, say it again. I go, you a baby. She goes, pow, <laughs> smack me again. And, uh, <laughs> so I said, all right. So then I left because I knew she was right. But again, she could have said it better.
0: So why comedy? Why were you like, okay, the next logical step after the MBA is comedy?
1: Because she planted, planted the seed in my head. She was trying to be a video... Uh, and getting a video game and she she had a job at PBS like being a grip or something and so she was on some terrible variety show and so I was there watching and a camera broke and so she goes "Daryl, you're funny go up there and just be funny while we fix the camera and I was Uh, like I'm funny And so, (laughs) so then that started the thought in my head. And so then, when she hit me and all the other stuff, a couple weeks later, I thought, well, maybe I am funny. So I called. I looked in the paper. She
0: literally knocked sense into your head. (laughs) Yes. Yep.
1: So I called the paper. I looked at Comedy Underground, saw in the paper, and I called. And that was it. Wow. Yeah. You got a white magic woman. That's what mm-hmm. happens when you get a, got a white magic woman. Got a white
0: magic woman. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, put, she gets put a white wo- magic yeah. woman. It's like, you got to get another job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. That's funny. So, so, so that's how you wound up in comedy. And that's you
1: wind, how I wound up in comedy. And then I messed all that up from manipulating the comedy community in Seattle. And I still feel like they haven't forgiven me. Uh, how how many years ago was this? This was ninety three, man. So in ninety three, so this was going on from eighty nine to ninety three. Five years in Seattle at the comedy in the comedy community. I still feel like most of them have forgiven me, but then that could be just me. Mm. Too. but I know how know, many
0: of them are still doing comedy even.
1: Uh, the ones that were important to me back then still are. Yeah. 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 So we started out
0: together, and it was a good group.
1: So do you think you didn't
0: have a conscience or or you suppressed your conscience seared, at the
1: time? Seared conscience was the phrase I saw. Uh, when I started doing stand-up, I would watch uh, uh, preachers on TV and i turned the volume down because I don't want to hear any more of that bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I'd watch how they would work the room with their body and their hands and stuff. And So I would learn how to use that on stage working on my stand-up game. And before I turned the volume down, I heard this one preacher say, you know, a lot of people have a seared consciousness, where, you know, some people call them sociopaths, but you know, it's a seared conscience. I mean, you don't have a conscience anymore; it's just burnt to a crisp. And I thought maybe I think that's me. I don't think I really have any regrets or remorse about doing any of this stuff.
0: So, so one I last see. lesson from the church. One last lesson before you shut them, muted them, literally. Muted them. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. yeah. So so I I mean it makes perfect sense to me. I feel like your whole life you felt like you'd been conned. You were conned out of whatever childhood you thought you were going to have by mm-hmm. being moved around you were conned out of love by by your dad you know kind of saying y- mm-hmm. you don't know what you're doing here i'm going to prove you wrong you were conned by the church you felt like that their message was a lie so you're like if everybody's going to con me i'm going to start conning everybody
1: exactly what i thought my my thought process during that time in seattle was i'm gonna get them before they got me and so i could tell somebody's intentions and their friendliness was genuine or not. Mm-hmm. And if I thought that it wasn't genuine, I'd get them. Uh, but if I knew that they were sincere, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Make so that right.
0: was your, your morality compass at the time. You're yep. like, I'm going <laughs> to, I'll be the judge now. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> nobody's nobody's right. going to. Yeah. Because here you are, you're, 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 you have a hard time seeing things clearly, literally. Mm-hmm. begin with so you're like you know what i gotta be i gotta protect myself
1: i you know you know what danny so much of it now is about you know what i can and can't see literally but back then even though i had really bad eyes i never thought about what i couldn't see because i thought i saw every angle possible so uh, the stuff that i was doing i didn't think i didn't think at the time i had anything to do with my vision even though well, the contact lenses, is, you know, I was as blind as a person could be blind. But I never really put it into my head that I'm doing this because I don't see things clearly or any of that stuff. So the vision really didn't become a conscious part of my day-to-day thinking until these last, I don't know, oh, 2009. Oh. Since, since, since the fight in Canada, when no, you... No, the fight in Canada was in 95, but right, right. I didn't start out. I The surgery was in 2009. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So, so you, you ran away to Canada to, to escape, you know, people started to find you a fraud. Yep, all you, the
1: fraud, being, you know, people just knew that I was, you know, uh, full of shit and bogus. And then I went to uh, divorce in L.A., And then... Not the witch. This is another one. This is a different... This was, you know, this is a different one. Again, she was important to me, but she said the same thing that the witch said. She was just, you know... I can... What? You just can't mess with Jewish women, man. (laughs) They don't play. They don't fall for... It's the same thing you talked about, you know? This is a kinship, and so they know they smell horseshit, right? Mm -hmm. So she was like, you're just a liar. You're just a con man. And I was like, oh, well, you've read my resume. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so I wanted to leave all of that behind and and start all over. So I went to Canada and dumped everything at the border, and just decided I'm going to be a, a great man and a great comic.
0: So you were blind and you didn't know it, and then you became blind. Yes. Wow, yeah. I could hear a preacher saying that. Yeah, Daryl, you were blind. Didn't know <laughs> so it. the Lord made yeah. you blind. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. So you went to Canada and you started doing comedy in Canada, mm-hmm. and uh, and then and then lost your vision and then came back to the states.
1: Mm-hmm. Got uh, in 2000. So I was in Canada from 94 to 2005, and it was just a great, great thing for me. I got what I was supposed to be doing on the microphone up there. I learned how to be a whole human being on stage. You learned how to, be, how to get what you wanted without frauding people. Uh, yeah, the frauding was done. Because when you don't have anything, the, best, the basis on being a good comment, you have to have a little bit of something mm-hmm. to get them to, to fall for you. So I, But I had nothing. I mean, I had one bag full of bad clothes and no money. And so I'm literally... There, so I couldn't con anybody with anything in Canada because I had nothing to entice them with.
0: Yeah, so you really yeah. stripped it all stripped down. Stripped it and, all
1: down, yeah. Because
0: every comic is a con man to an extent. Absolutely. Because, it, I mean, you're just kind of pretending. You just decide I'm a comic and, and, yeah. and you tell everybody. That's right. And I, I, I had a unique experience that I've talked about on the show where I, I spent a night uh, hanging out with Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. Wow. And I told them. Uh, I said, sometimes I feel like a phony, like I'm not the real thing as a comedian. Mm. And, and they said, uh, and, and Mel says, we're all phonies. He's like, what are you talking about? Nobody's the real thing. <laughs> yeah. he's, like, he's like, you're just as real as anybody else. He said, yeah. he said, uh, he said you, you think Carl and I don't still feel like phonies? He goes, we're just fooling them. He wow. goes, he goes every, every time they honor us or they say how great you are, we're just smiling and thinking we're still fooling them. That's you know, great, man. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> wow! What a, I mean, how'd you meet those guys F- through this show? Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's awesome, man.
0: So, I mean, I guess everybody, you have to be a con. It's, it makes perfect sense that you got into comedy at the sure. time that you were at the height of your conning.
1: Absolutely. It's what I tell people, you know, I, when I got off stage, I knew everything that I was really good at fit mm-hmm. that, 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 that job being a comedian. And then when did you feel you reformed? Um, it was on, a, it was on a, a road trip way up northern BC. Small towns, 600 people, 400 people. Uh, and I was with a, a headliner from Seattle who I uh, named Michelle Baudry. And so she knew about all my hustle and my con and all the stuff in Seattle, and we went up there. She picked me up in a little terrible house. I was staying in Canada, we, in BC, and we drove up north. Um, and the first night I just bombed. And then I would get up in the morning and walk around these towns and neighborhoods just to kind of get my bearings, see where I was. And I looked up and I thought, I have no idea where I am or what I'm doing. What the hell am I going on in my life? And that same voice in my head that asked me, did you want to be MBA? Get up and go to church. That voice said, well, What do you really have? And I said, All I have is uh, these jokes in a suitcase. And, uh, and the voice goes, Well, you better act like it. And so I made up my mind, Okay, everything that I was bad at, I'm going to reinvent my definitions of love and trying to become a uh, making it and a star and that kind of stuff by just loving the hell out of comedy. Mm-hmm. And so I got on stage that night and I talked about what I'd seen in that town. And that just lit up the crowd. And then I got back after three weeks on the road and I hit the club that I always worked out in where I was staying at. The guy that owns, I was staying at his place. I got on stage and I just destroyed it. And he goes, what the hell happened? And I said, I, I figured it out. I, I, I'm supposed to be in the moment right now. That's it. So no more fame, no more fortune. I'm just gonna love this thing. I'm gonna love comedy. And comedy's gonna teach me how to love life again. And that was it.
0: You know what I'm hearing in the story? It, to me, in the, in the story of your life, your dad taught you how to prostitute yourself. Mm-hmm. And then you hit rock bottom prostituting yourself. Yeah. And then you decided at one point, I'm not a prostitute anymore. Sure. You just, you just kind of took, took it back. Yeah. Took back your own self.
1: Sure, yeah. Yeah. I was, and you know, if I hadn't gotten so much trouble, I wouldn't have stopped because it was fun. But then when uh, I started working in Canada, I realized nobody cared if I was funny or not funny or going to be a star or not going to be a star. They just liked that I was good at what I was doing. And then and I had so many life experiences that and I realized, well, shit, so do they. So I I listen to all these great stories and whereas before. I try to dominate the conversation with my stories, try to make myself sound more interesting. I listen to these people and everybody had great stories. And I thought, okay, now I just know what I'm doing. I'm going to be a whole human being on stage.
0: I kind of think you were just looking for love. You were just like a kid wandering around begging for love. Who is it, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah, Who is it? (laughs) But the different thing is that, I mean, you were told love is fake. Yeah. Your dad literally told you, there is no love, son. Sure. It's a a lie. It's
1: a lie. And, yeah, on both sides. Mm -hmm. On both sides, mom and dad's side. Your mom also? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was, you know, because he destroyed her love. She loved him so much. Uh, And then when he decided he was going to be in the pimp game, she tried to force his hand and take some pills. Uh, And he just drove her to the hospital, and they pumped her stomach and uh and then that was that and she just she, that was it for her she was like i'll never love anything like that again and so she never really she you know she didn't understand how much she loved my stepdad until he died in 08 but she just was just tough strong and you know she used to say, I know you think you're gonna to try to make it on that white horse of basketball, but you ain't gonna make it, so you better do something. She fought me, fought me something. Be a garbage man, it's more practical. <laughs> Stop dreaming so big. So all the things that I thought mm-hmm. were inside of me, the, the possibilities of, you know, extraordinary achievement and more than forty percent of my brain power got squashed all the time. Yeah. And so I'd run away from the people that squashed them to go try to go and figure out how I could do it.
0: Yeah. Wow. So everything that, that you wanted to be real in life, the two people who you trusted the most, your parents were telling you, nope, it's fake. It's all fake. It's all a lie. So you went around life for a long time. like Calling you know,
1: people, telling them that this is possible. Hey, this is possible. You know, there's yeah. great things coming. There's great things. Really? Great things are coming. <laughs> so if you just give me your credit card. <laughs> <laughs> and you can have this timeshare. Because
0: <laughs> so. you're thinking in your head anyway, your mom told you, great things aren't coming. Yeah. Great things aren't coming, so these people are idiots, so yeah. screw them, you know?
1: Yeah. And the thing I always knew, uh, my heart was pretty pure about it, is I always knew with everybody that I got, I was going to come back and apologize once I became rich. Because how long can you stay rich, man at a rich dude, right? So i <laughs> So yeah, I like, well, I'll come back and I'll see. I told you it was going to happen; it just happened at a later time. Right, right. Yeah, so that yeah. way, it's not a lie. So it's not a lie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: All right, your conscience wasn't completely seared. No. You no. were still, you were still like hedging your bets on the fact that I can, I can make this I true can still in the future. we make
1: this true. That's right. I, if I can hang on a little bit longer, I can make this true. All
0: right, let's take a look at our philosopher. Let's Do it. The philosopher that Alex picked for you is Thomas More. And what you have in common with him is, uh, as Alex points out, that you were a con man, which we talked about. Mm -hmm. And Moore had trouble with the law. He was executed by Henry VIII. Moore wrote his novel, Utopia, about a fictional country to show his ideal solutions to a European society. Moore's main problem with society is enclosure, the keeping of private property and land. This creates the seeds for greed and capitalism, which becomes a war among selfish households to acquire the most wealth. Separating one's land from others leads to a distrust of neighbors, leads to war, and adds a sense of entitlement to those who own property. All these end in greed, hatred, and bloodshed, especially of petty thieves who are seen as heretics to capitalistic society. Utopia has no personal property, so all these problems are minimized. There are also several religions in Utopia, but they all agree that worship is good so only atheists are disliked, but tolerated. This draws an interesting contrast to Marxism because Russian communism ended in atheism as religion was seen as a threat to the state. While Moore sees religion as the only way to properly run the state.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can easily draw those parallels, right? So his version of utopia, as you described but immediately, I thought, well, that was what Canada was for me. You know, it's a it's a socialist country and they didn't judge me. Um and they were tolerant of uh of uh of just about everything. Um and so, yeah, and then as far as the you know, the heretics and the and the greed and the bloodshed, and all that kinda of stuff, yeah, I've got all of that in me. And so uh Alec did great with that. I had never heard of Thomas More, but uh um but there's also um And I I guess if I can see that in what you've read, then it must be in me too. But there's also uh, some sadness in having to believe that. um, There's like a a resignation to, you know, man, I guess this is what I gotta believe. This is what I gotta do. Um, And so when you read that, I thought, yeah, that that guy must have been sad and I've never felt like I was sad but I bet if you know as if I looked at the movie of my life I would probably go man that's sad that dude is a broken guy Mm -hmm. uh, to do that stuff so huh yeah I wonder if he was sad it's interesting that you see your own sadness only through seeing his well I mean sure that's what Self-absorption is, right? You, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, yeah, <laughs> Too focused on trying to make it to be sad. But, again, if I'd step outside of myself and see it, i go, oh, okay. I mean, like, my dad is the same, and so there would, I remember, uh, I went into this. He had all these apartments scattered around the city, and I would go, um, and, and play basketball, and I come hang on him. There's all these girls and people smoking rocks and everything. And I saw him. He just nodding out at a table in a room by himself. And I go, "Hey man, you okay?" And he snapped his head up. He goes, "Yeah, what's up?" I said, "You gonna be okay, man?" He said, "You know how they always say, last one out of the room, turn off the lights." I go, "Yeah." He goes, "I'm gonna be the one to turn off the lights." And I remember thinking, that is the saddest credo I've ever heard in my life. But if you talk to him, he would say, "You know what, man? I had some sad things happen in Vietnam, but uh, not sad." Mm-hmm. So from the outside looking in, you know, people would think, "Yeah, that guy's obviously says something sad about that guy." Mm-hmm. So yeah, is he still around your dad? Yeah, we are really, 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 really good friends. Yeah, we. It's it's great. DNA is fantastic now. Mm-hmm. I love it. How did he wind up going to jail? Uh, a bunch of different times. Um... He went to jail for um, selling, solicitation, and he ran some guns and just some narcotics. And and then when uh, that crack epidemic hit really hard, you know, they dropped that big old law. You know, they just try to give you 20 years for, you know, a rock of cocaine. So then he tried to make a run from it, from the feds and stuff. But he's been in and out, I would say, a good four or five times. And what's his life like now? He uh, just got married uh, a couple weeks ago for the fourth time. Um, Seventy-three. You know, he had a prostate cancer scare, so that kind of you know calmed him down a little bit. But he uh, still, uh, whenever I'm around, he just got off house arrest back to his house arrest sentences. So when I'm around, he likes to come out to the shows, and Mm -hmm. he's my biggest fan. So we get to hang out and took him to Tahoe. You know, yeah, it was great. And we had a great time.
0: Does he still have the same outlook about women?
1: You know what? Um, we we kind of squashed all of that. You know, I'm married now, and I, you know, I stopped asking him for advice on women. You know, after the poll in the hole, but um, <laughs> um, probably a wise decision. Yeah. <laughs> we for my birthday in uh, '09, I had a big birthday party, and I flew him and a couple of friends out to New York and so it was just he and I so we got to talk on my turf and he used to run New York he was a big shot in New York so it was good for him to be out there but I asked him about all that stuff and he told me you know some stories that I hadn't heard before like the first time he really felt like he was in love with a girl you know post finding out his mom slept with you know people Mm -hmm. Uh, and he said this girl was, uh, was really in love with her and then she just didn't like him because, you know, he didn't have anything. And he said, so I stopped trusting her after that. He said, I always thought, you know, that the girls wanted me for different reasons. And so, and it was the exact same story that I lived, you know, uh-huh. Just, I, they liked me for different reasons. So if they liked me for different reasons, I'm gonna charge their ass is what he would
0: say. Right. Yeah. So now now that he's older and he's had this life scare
1: and he's married again. Married this and she's, you know, probably mid-60s, got him a young one. And uh, she's trying to go back to school, so he's paying for everything with his via veterans benefits. He must still believe in love on some level, right? I think he never stopped, but, uh, but again, he's still, it's... It's ridiculous. Dan, if you go to my dad's Facebook page, first of all, he was always scooping on my Facebook page trying to pick up my bras. These, <laughs> these girls are like, your dad's trying to hit on me on Facebook? <laughs> and so if he posts anything on his Facebook, like he posted that he's got, you know, I'm scared I got a cancer scare. And then it was like out of woodwork, it's 12, 13 women. Like, you gotta come home with me daddy and these other fuck you bitch you don't love him like I love him And say as a Facebook fight watch all these women Mm -hmm. it's it's ridiculous all right let me take it back to more 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 Tomas Mas (laughs) all right here's some more more
0: some descriptions of Moore's utopia one prince is elected for every 30 houses that's kind of like your dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got those 30 apartments. Right, yeah. <laughs> People are redistributed around the households to keep numbers even. If overpopulated, members are distributed to colonies. If underpopulated, they're called back. No private property. Items are stored in warehouses. No locks on doors. Houses rotate every 10 years. All citizens are required to grow crops All citizens are required to grow crops. That sounds like witchcraft. (laughs) (laughs) They're all out there gardening. Women do the same work as men. Everyone must also learn one skill. An example, weaving. That sounds like witchcraft. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Everyone wears simple clothes, nothing flashy or expensive. Criminals or captors from other countries become slaves. Every house gets two slaves. When utopia fights another country, this is seen as a kind of alternative to murder. There are several religions, moon worshipers, sun worshipers, ancestor worshipers, plant worshipers. Those are the all planet. witches. Those <laughs> are all witches. Yeah. And monotheists. Atheists do not see the point in existence, so they are hated but tolerated. They are encouraged to talk with the priests until they see the error of their ways. What do you think of his utopia?
1: I think that uh, you know we used to say back in the day somebody smelling their own piss. I think it's getting good to him now. Uh, so I think he's kind of running amok with it a little bit. The first part of it, the first uh, quote was like, "Oh, okay, I can understand it," but now you know the women can't dress; they got to dress a certain way. You got to grow crops and and all that kind of stuff. That's that's Mormonism, right? yeah <laughs> it sounds like it does it sound like big love once again
0: it's like you know what this sounded good at first yeah, and it now. sounds good at first uh-huh. uh, i'll tell you when when thomas Moore lived from he lived from february 7th
1: i knew he was an aquarius 1470 i knew he was an aquarius did you really yeah i knew it yeah i just from the way he was like this dude's got to be an aquarius
0: what, what what is it about aquarius is that made you think they that?
1: think uh and talk and such uh, extreme uh, utopian and and there's a better way of doing things, thing and there's supposed to be a lot of you know communal and social you know everybody's equal a certain extent They they have a basic humanitarianism philosophy but there's also this unbelievable sense of grandeur and grandiosity to the things that they want to do. Are you very into astrology? I my first girl, the witch. Yeah. That was, <laughs> this that is was part the of his book. That part very, of your education. Are you kidding me? As <laughs> part as part of my hook, I know everything about
0: astrology. And he, he lived till July sixth, fifteen thirty five. So that gives some context to sure. to uh, the times.
1: Nineteen
0: thirty five. No, fifteen thirty five. Oh, I was like, ooh. Um, he was venerated by Catholics as St. Thomas More. He was an English lawyer, right. a social philosopher, an author, a statesman, and a noted Renaissance humanist. Mm-hmm. He was also a counselor to Henry VIII and Lord Chancellor from October. I like that they go from the month. From October 1529 till May sixteenth fifteen 1532. But Henry VIII killed him. Yeah, in 1533, More refused to attend the, what's this word? Coronation. Mm-hmm. The coronation of Anne in as Queen of England. Technically this was not an act of treason, as Moore had written to Henry acknowledging Anne's queenship and expressing his desires for the king's happiness and the queen's health. Despite this, his refusal to attend was widely interpreted as a snub against Anne, and he took action against him. Look, so basically it's a it's like a Biggie Tupac situation. It got right. misinterpreted yeah. and, and he wound up dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, with his refusal to, to support the king's annulment. Uh, Moore's enemies had enough evidence to have the king arrest him on treason. Four days later, Henry had Moore imprisoned in the Tower of London. Uh, I see where this is going. The jury took 15 minutes and they found Moore guilty. He was tried under the following section, Treason Act of 1534. And then they killed him. They hanged him. Wow. He was sentenced to be hanged and drawn and quartered. I don't know what drawn and quartered. Drawn is probably like what Dan Schlissel has going on here at the festival. Yeah. They were just court artists. <laughs> it's a little different. But the king commuted to this execution by decapitation. So he was he was nice to him. He least I'll just cut your head off. The execution took place on the 6th of July, 1535. Did, uh, I bet he, he had to give him a speech.
1: I bet Thomas More did a speech before he chopped his head off.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's see. Here. When he came to mount the steps to the scaffold, he's widely quoted as saying, yep, you're right. I pray you, I pray you. Mr. Lieutenant, see me safe up for my coming down. I can shift for myself. While on the scaffold, he declared that he, that he died. While on the scaffold, he declared that he died, the king's good servant, but God's first. Yeah, he had his moment. Yeah. I don't know. If he was on a scaffold, maybe he was, a, maybe he was hung.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it.
0: Hmm. Maybe or, I misunderstood Or I mean, they
1: could still chop his head off on a scaffolding, too, though.
0: Yeah. yeah. But why put him on a scaffolding? Just, the <laughs> it's show. so much easier yeah. to yeah. chop that See off. Yeah. It didn't end well for him. You want? Let's take a look at some of his quotes. And, and normally I would have the guests read them, but because of your vision, and I'm telling this to the listeners, not, not to, to rub it into you, but because of your vision, I'm going to read the quotes just so nobody thinks you're trying to get out of it or something. Mm,
1: I'm conning you, Danny. (laughs) I can see everything. I just (laughs) (laughs) just see every letter. I just want you to do that for me. (laughs) Damn it, I've been had.
0: (laughs) All right. This first one is on the selfishness of European society. He said, no living creature is naturally greedy except from fear of want. Or in the case of human beings, from Vanity, the notion that you're better than people if you can display more superfluous property than they can.
1: That still holds true today, right? That's that's how I felt. Um, you know, fake it till you make it. Uh, I felt like people gave me more credibility if I had, you know, nicer stuff, or you know, lied and said I had some good stuff coming. Uh, and so you appeal to their sense of greed and want and vanity for all that stuff. Um, it's interesting. Uh, now you got me thinking that you know he's an Aquarius, and he's you know I get all of that stuff. And and here's something, uh, if you allow me, just a little weird tangent about that stuff. But you know some of my greatest comics uh, that have been Aquarius are enormous, but they have a little similar of that whole kind of universal. Chris Rock's an Aquarius, and he's got that whole you know. His stuff is very social oriented and Mm -hmm. the government hates rap and I love life. And so it's like a huge Mm -hmm. people centric thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, Kennison, former preacher, Aquarius. And also Dick Gregory, Aquarius. um, So there's this whole thing. And it's so funny when I find just listening to these Thomas More quotes about the philosophy is because he wanted, you know, this utopian talked about it. But there was a lot of limelight in there, you know. There's mm-hmm. like a, a wanting of this public attention and appeal to say these profound things and try to amass followers and believers with this philosophy. Uh, and so if that's the case, then how much can a person put into their, you know, a bunch of people put into their thing? If he, I mean, how much is it is self-serving? How much is it for the betterment of mankind? Mm-hmm. Make sense?
0: Yeah. You're saying he too is greedy. Sure. He was vain and
1: selfish and wanting. Yeah, he was all those things. And so, but in his society utopia, he was just gonna be the pimp. Was, he was just gonna run the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> at least thirty apartments. Yeah, thirty. <laughs> yeah. All right. Here's another one on the elective nature of Utopia's government. Anyone who campaigns for public office becomes disqualified for holding any office at all. Well, that's kind of just what you said yeah right yeah you want you want the power therefore you don't yep. get it because you can't be trusted that's right
1: and that's what he's but that's what he's vying for mm-hmm. i wonder what he i wonder what he thought this was going to do for him like when i first started trying to talk about my dad on stage and i did it because i worked with chris rock and he just kicked the hell out of me because he had just he was about to take bring the pain And so HBO was following around doing, you know, B-roll stuff. And he was doing that stuff. And I was just so embarrassed. He was so much better than I was. But, um, and I I dumped all of my set and wrote a whole new 20 minutes. The next time he goes, what the hell happened to you? But it reminds me of like, um, and I started talking to my dad. And I'd ask myself, well, what am I trying to get by telling this stuff? Everybody's not gonna relate to it. Or am I doing it just to try to be different? And if I am, then I'm still trying to grandstand in the limelight, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. I'm purposefully trying to, hey, look at me. I'm so different. It's so unique. So I wonder what he thought. Well, what do you, what, what conclusion did you come to? Did you
0: figure out why you were doing it?
1: Um, yeah, I did, uh, back then it was again everything was about achievement and accomplishment and so i thought well nobody has this story and you know i want to be as good as chris rock was is i was like i want to be that good and so i can't come up with you know the bits he came up with because there had them but this is my perspective Mm -hmm. and this happened to me so that's what i'm gonna do
0: so why were you knocking yourself for doing it then
1: because I wanted to make sure the motivation for why I was doing it was legit. Because when, you know, when you're hustling somebody, you just say me and you were at a bar, and then I'm watching you, and I'm watching you, and then you buy a few rounds of insurance, but I can deduce that you got some money, and then I decide to tell you some story, personal story about my life, you know, because I want you to feel some sympathy or some excitement about opportunity I might have for you and for me. Now I'm just manipulating you with this piece of material mm-hmm. to try to get something out of you.
0: So you were trying to make sure that you weren't hustling yourself.
1: Hustling myself and hustling those, the audience. I love comedy. I, when I fell in love with this, this is after I was in Canada and I worked with Chris in, in, in uh, Sacramento. And I, I, So I'm very diligent and conscious about my intentions on what I was going to do on that microphone.
0: I wonder if there got to be a point where you weren't even sure if you could trust yourself, when you were hus- hustling everybody. Like you, once the lines are so blurred, you don't even know when you're being honest with your with yourself.
1: Well, I what I did was I broke, you know, anything that was hidden and that was hurting me. I brought it to the light. So you know, I I, you know, confronted my mom and I confronted you know, everybody who I thought hurt me and I confronted everybody who. I hurt and I let them all yell and scream at me and all that sort of stuff. I apologize and try to make payments and that sort of stuff. So I broke, you know, those sores, broke the skin of all the sores that I had fetched on the inside. So once you do that, now all you can do is heal.
0: The first step of recovery in a 12-step program, right? Is call everybody.
1: That's what they say, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I knew that I should do that in order to, if I was really going to be good, I had to clean out all the horseshit on the inside.
0: We didn't really get into how you conned all the comedians in Seattle and made them, and made them hate you. Can I get a little taste of what that was? Because I know it, yeah. but the, my listeners don't know it.
1: Okay. Um, well... Uh, I had a very good friend of mine who was a comic and, and this Martin so he started giving me these business books how to swim with sharks and Dale Carnegie how to win Friends and influence people that stuff so I just chewed that up it's like having tapes mm-hmm. to play and so uh, and I got stationary and, and business cards and everything so I was really playing the role of comedian slash businessman uh, but I knew it was just a hustle and I never really worked as hard on my comedy as I did on looking for opportunities but I sped, tried to speed up the process because I was very insecure that some of the comics uh, that I started with doing better than I was, and I got mad, mm. and so I, uh, I wrote a letter to one of the most powerful agents at that time, at William Morris, and said, you know, I'm one of the best young comedians. If you're one of the best agents, you'll do your due diligence and, and look me up. And so then I mailed them a letter, and then according to all the books, Power, of subconscious mind, all those things that I read, I said it out loud to manifest it in the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, when I came back from LA to Seattle, all my friends were like, Well, what happened in LA? And without thinking, I said, I signed with William Morris. <laughs> and then uh, they asked me how. And then that scared me because I knew I was going to have to tell a lie. Mm-hmm. And I and I wasn't going to tell him, look, I'm just trying to manifest this. So I just told him, well, you know, he saw me and he liked me. He saw my evening at the improv and he liked me. So then I immediately felt bad because I knew I was jeopardizing the outcome because it was a lie. Mm-hmm. And I panicked and I got oh, I got to make this happen faster. But what they did was they told everybody in the city and everybody in the community got excited. Oh, Daryl's, you know, got a William Morris agency. So they just <laughs> started giving me stuff. And uh, I'm getting taken out to, you know, wine and steak dinners and the Sonics (laughs) games. And I'm headlining. I couldn't middle in Montana, but now I'm headlining. Mm. And so I just started chewing that up, man. Um, So eventually uh, I kept piling on the the lies to get more stuff. Um, Like what were some of the other ones? uh, That... um, I was going to have a sitcom deal. NBC and CBS were having a bidding war on me. Um, <laughs> you created a utopia. <laughs> yes, yes, I created a utopia. Uh, and so in order to keep that moving, uh, I broke up with the one girlfriend because she wasn't uh, good looking as a guy who would have multiple television deals. <laughs> And so I found this unbelievably good-looking girl, San Jose, and told her, you know, and I, see, the hustle as I had that evening at Improv on tape. And mm-hmm. I go, I've been on TV. I'm telling you, this is all happening now. And so, and I had a letter from, uh, um, Jim McCauley that booked tonight's show. I wrote him a letter. Uh-huh. and So I was like, I really want to be on the show. It was Johnny's last year. And he sent me a letter saying, although we feel you're talented, we can't right now. So I threw the letter away and just kept the stationery from what he sent it on <laughs> tonight's show. <laughs> <laughs> so so <laughs> I was... I would walk around with that thing in my back pocket just uh-huh. waiting for somebody to say something. Uh-huh. And I'd go, look what's happening for me. This is incredible. Yeah. And I would get drinks and, you know. And so I, I got the girl San Jose to give me, you know, her American Express card in my name. And so mm-hmm. now that, that fulfilled, like, okay, I'm faking it until I make it. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, clothes and everything. <laughs> well, your whole
0: life became a lie on one lie.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> Here's another quote on why we elect kings in the first place. But what they find most amazing and despicable is the insanity of those who all but worship the rich. This is already starting to make me think about how everybody worshipped you as soon as you had a William Morris agent. Absolutely. To whom they owe nothing and to who can do them no harm. They do so for no other reason except that they are rich. Knowing full well that they are so mean and tight-fisted that they will certainly never give them one red cent
1: during their whole lives. God, you know, it's so weird. It's like you just, nothing changes, you know? It's always, that's all the same. That is, like when I was um, indecisive about going all the way committing to comedy but still having basketball dreams, I went into um, this nightclub after I bombed on uh, stage at the Kama Underground. This is a uh, nightclub across the street called the Hollywood Underground as well, you know, mostly Army Hip-Hop Club. And so all the Supersonics and uh, basketball players would be in there. And then Gary Payton and Derek McKee, a bunch of big-time Sonics were in there. And I knew those guys because I played against them in summer leagues and stuff. And so I was standing there feeling awkward that I wasn't playing basketball anymore and I was trying to do this thing. And they were ignoring me. And this girl came by and she was pretty. And Gary Payton his long ass orangutan fingers pointing his finger at the girl's face and goes, look, bitch, my name is Gary Payton, I make $3 million a year, I'm not ready to get married, but I'll buy you a drink. And she looked at him and said, okay. And I thought, what the hell? <laughs> and then I got so mad and I was like, these dudes ain't discovering catcher. this is bullshit. And so I was so mad and jealous at the same time and I was like, okay, this is it, you know. But it's, it's exactly what Thomas More saying there, you know, You worshiping these kings, this wealth, and knowing they're not gonna give you anything. Right. He, t- he dang a three million dollars, I'm not gonna marry you, so you're not gonna get what you want from me, uh-huh. and I'll give you a drink, which is the scent that he's talking about. <laughs> it's the same
0: thing you could've gave her.
1: Exactly, exactly, <laughs> yeah.
0: Wow, nothing
1: changes. Nothing changes.
0: Here's our last quote, you ready? Yep. On the vicious cycle of capitalism, to thievery for if you suffer your people to be ill-educated and their manners to be corrupted from their infancy and then punish them for those crimes to which their first education disposed them what else is to be concluded from this but that you first make thieves and then punish them
1: sure that's uh, that's uh, the prison system that's trickle-down economics that's uh that's capitalism at its finest right yeah it's very interesting people want to keep you exactly where you are the wealthy and the kings and the the royals want to keep you exactly where you are because if there's more if you can fit into their circles then they're not special anymore
0: that's how they that's how they maintain the place but i mean it works in every way it's in comedy too absolutely getting into the club yep i still am trying to get into that club you know yeah they want they don't want to let you in
1: yeah which one
0: the the one where everybody's making money and oh, you know oh, I, I i mean but they're all the, it's it's the comedy club it's as it's as small as the comedy cellar and it's as grand as touring the country sure. or doing movies or you yep. know kevin hart's got his club yep. that he got into you
1: absolutely. know absolutely absolutely at that premiere when i met you know spike lee and sam I met all these people and i realized something i i understood where i was in the game now um, is that every one of those dudes that became very successful in the entertainment field did something on their own to buck the system. Mm -hmm. Uh, And with Spike, everybody knows the movies that weren't studio movies that blew him up, and Sam Jackson was a crackhead, and everybody at some point has to buck the system in order to reach an extraordinary level of achievement. Because you can't really do it. The, because like Thomas More said, the king's not going to give you anything. Right. Um, and so I understood, okay, that's what I am now. I'm not this silly kid pretending not to be a pimp and pretending not to be a preacher anymore. I'm a guy that did something. I bucked the system. Right. And that's what I have to continue to be.
0: Daryl Lennox, the man who went blind in order to see. Yeah. <laughs> you you went blind in order to see clearly. That's. That's the
1: gist of it, huh? Alex did a great job with that. I would have never, and I had heard of Thomas More before now that I, I think about it, but, uh, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, I was wondering who he was going to pick when you told me about that. I immediately became curious. And so what I thought was I was supposed to pick a philosopher and and talk about it and so when we were going to do this in LA I was up and I was like what well what philosophers because I read a lot of (laughs) philosophy yeah but then I decided I was going to talk about this guy uh, Neil Donald Walsh who uh, wrote these uh, series of books starting with his first book called conversation with God which made all my religious stuff make sense um,
0: sounds like we got another episode in us yeah. at some point
1: I was prepared for that one way back in LA So, <laughs> well I appreciate it Daryl thank you so job. much
0: for doing the show
1: thanks Danny good to see you man good
0: to see you too and I'm honored to be sharing the stages with you
1: here at the Akamal Comedy Festival okay hallway <laughs> what's that mean <laughs> okay hallway it's me and you <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> thanks
0: That's been our show. Thanks again to my guest, Daryl Lennox. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, Next, next episode is our season finale. You don't want to miss that one. I've got quite a surprise for you who it is. And I'm excited. That's all I'll say. I'm excited. And you should be too. Why shouldn't you be excited? Go ahead. Be excited. Uh, Standuprecords.com. That's our sponsor. Go check them out. And you can also support this show by going to moderndayphilosophers.net and clicking on the donate button. Lord knows we we rely on it. Please help me out. Please. You don't owe me one, but you know, kind of owe me. Not really, but it would be nice. Uh, Another thing you could do to support the show is go on iTunes and you can buy the whole first season of the show, which is only available on iTunes. And if it's available other places, because there's pirates out there, but hopefully it's only available on iTunes and it's got some great episodes in it. You could hear how the show got started and all the, you know, all the first episodes, Maria Bamford, Yakov Smirnoff, uh, Rick Shapiro, Fred Stoller. These are all names that come to mind from the first season right off the bat. Uh, I uh, Janine Garofalo, Katie Olson. I don't know. It's a great first season. You should go and get it. And it's pretty inexpensive. I think the episodes are 99 cents each or $10 for 12 or 9.99 for 12. Really. It's the marketing tactic there. Uh, yeah, go pick that up. And if you can leave a nice comment on iTunes, I think it's been a minute since we got some comments and we could use them to boost the visibility of the show. You know how that goes. Leave five stars, a nice comment and have a good day. All right, everybody. Uh, If you do want some more Danny Lobel, me, I have another podcast going on iTunes. It's called The Mostly Bull Market, and it's me and a comedian every week making fun of whatever financial news is out there. We don't know what we're talking about, even more than we don't know what we're talking about on this show. So How do you like that? All right. Have a great week, everybody, and we'll see you next time with another exciting and jam-packed episode of Modern Day Philosophers. Goodbye.